Hello and welcome to this week's Grape Culture Podcast, the podcast where three women drink wine and discuss feminist literature and issues. I am Sam. I'm Kim. And I'm Alex. And we hope you enjoy the episode. So just so that all of our listeners are aware, we are going to be touching on some sensitive subjects this week. So this is our trigger warning to you as an audience, just in case you are dealing with issues of sexual assault or anything like that. We will be talking about that. So this may be your point to step away from the podcast if you need to. So this week we are going to be talking about The Handmaid's Tale, both the TV show and the book, and what the differences are between them, what kind of relevance it has to what's happening in the world today, which is all fucking terrifying, Um, and lots of other bits and pieces around that. But before we do, uh, Kim, do you want to tell us a bit about the wine that you've chosen for this week? Yes. Yes. Before I do that, I just want to make a quick note about choosing a wine to talk about The Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) Um, we are going to touch upon a story later on in which uh, someone tried to make wine related to The Handmaid's Tale, in mm. which I believe Offred was described as like a complex Pinot Noir. It's very disturbing and very gross. Mm. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to make light of The Handmaid's Tale. The concept of this podcast was always pair wine with the topic that we're talking about, drinking wine whilst talking about topics, Sometimes they're really fucking difficult to talk about and you need to drink a little bit more. With that in mind, I didn't want to choose a Pinot Noir or just be like, this is a really heavy wine because this is a really heavy topic. (laughs) So friend of the podcast made a point about the rationing in the book. And was there any kind of um, historical information about rationing and alcohol? Alcohol was available during rationing in the United Kingdom in World War II, but sugar was really hard to get so it wasn't as common to get good wine what a lot of people did was make fruit wine from hedgerows from all the fruits and their trees and everything uh blackberry wine rosehip wine was particularly popular because it was high in vitamin c with that in mind i've opted for lanchester cherry wine which is vegan it is described as a sweet and luscious wine, delightful as an aperitif or after a meal, for a change, serve mulled in winter or with ice and soda water in the summer. We will be drinking it straight because we are classy AF. <laughs> um, basically Lambrini. Cool. So this is from Lanchester uh, Wineries. They are a company in the UK that they produce wines of their own, mostly fruit wines, which are really popular in sort of heritage sites like uh, Hadrian's Ball and... Um, the Roman baths and all that sort of stuff because they have these very lovely Celtic labels but they also uh, supply other wines to various shops and bars I shall pour hooray pour one out for cherry wine (laughs) raise a glass to freedom Um, as usual my (laughs) lovely coffee table is really unstable so I'm going to hold these glasses whilst I'm pouring (laughs) or smash them into each other or smash them into each other and ruin everything I'm going to give it a sniff. That is what you are meant to do when trying wine. I know. Usually I just go straight Ooh, for it. You're meant but... to tilt your chin down on your chest and okay. sniff it. <laughs> That's the best. It's because that's the face I pull when I take a chin selfie. <laughs> okay, so you take a chin selfie. Sorry, mummy. Give it a sniff. Swirl it round. Give it a taste. And then... Stupid people spit it out, but that seems like a waste to me. So then you just oh yeah, yeah. 
That's okay. about as much as I remember because then I started drinking wine. Oh, I was going to say cheers to everybody, but Alex has already started drinking, so she can't I've done the chin, Rude. I've done the swirl, I was ready to try. <laughs> okay, cheers! Cheers! Ooh, those are good glasses. I know, right? Oh, it is so sweet. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, I love it, though. It tastes like um, alcohol-free wine. Which is basically, oh, well, like, they sure, take yeah. shit wine, take all the fun stuff out of it, and add loads of sugar so you keep drinking it. That's what this tastes like. Good. Feel like the whole but it's nicer. It's nicer. But just sugar. It's it's very... You, I don't think I could drink an entire bottle of this on my own, so... No. I mean, i give it a try. Nor should you. It's 11%. <clears throat> Whoa. Which is higher than I would have thought. <laughs> what about <a> cherry wine? <laughs> <laughs> so now that Kim has... Get done her very intellectual thing explaining the wine and the reason for choosing it and we have and sufficiently we and drink it and now we've sufficiently mocked her for it mm-hmm. um we should move on to talk about the book i suppose mm-hmm. so we're going to be approaching this from the view that alex has never read the book mm-hmm. i've never watched the tv series sam has read the book and watched the tv series but we've of the people that have seen the tv series we've only seen season one which is which most, is the book? Which is the book? Yeah, um, essentially covers everything that happens in the book and then some. But we're going to talk about um, the differences, what we thought of it from each point of view. It'll be interesting to get um, points of view from people who've, I was going to say, enjoyed this story in a different way. I suppose "enjoyed" is not really the word if they are made to tell. Enjoyed um, is not the word. Experienced it in a different way. Yeah. Appreciated, appreciated it. Appreciated. Yes. So if anyone is unaware of what The Handmaid's Tale is, um, basically it is a dystopian, it was a novel originally by Margaret Atwood, um, in which um, the United States have become a theocracy, I believe, um, where women are very much second class citizens, well, they're basically stripped of all their rights, they can't read or write, or they're, they're encouraged not to read or write, and in fact it's illegal, um, and they're divided into classes of women, basically wives for um, high-ranking high men, um, Marthas who are maids or servants, and handmaids who are fertile women who are recruited to bear children because the birth rates have dropped so much. That is the basic premise, but there's a lot more to it than that. Mm. I, have been, <laughs> I have been living in the world of The Handmaid's Tale in my ears for the last two days because I've been listening to the audiobook to refresh my memory. And God shit damn. (laughs) It's just so hard to listen to. Mm -hmm. It's so depressing. I got in my car, I finished it about sort of four o'clock this afternoon and I got in my car to drive home and I was like, what is the frothiest, cheeriest thing that I can put on my radio to cheer myself the fuck up? Because I am sad all over the place. Just so sad. Um, And even with the end of the book, doesn't end in the story. So you get the end of of Offred's story, um, and then you get the sort of a research paper, essentially, about that, as if it was discovered, her diary was discovered 200 years later. Oh, really? That's yeah. really interesting. Like so a it, transcript of a lecture about her story, essentially, but it's told within the frame of the story. 
Yeah. Ooh, I'd like and to read that part. Well, I'd like to read the whole the whole novel yeah. really, but like that's yeah. really interesting. It's and that really definitely isn't touched on in the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they very much talk about it like um like we would talk about the middle middle ages or something mm. along those lines. And it's it's jarring because they're making all sorts of jokes. They're talking about like, for those of you who haven't got your galoshes for the field trip tomorrow, remember that you mm-hmm. can get them at the end of the show. Like, it's that sort of thing. And even that was not enough to alleviate the uh feeling that I had. <laughs> and I am normally a relatively articulate person and I can't necessarily articulate the feeling that it gives me. Um, for those who care, I listened to a podcast about books with witches in them, in which people talked uh, also about their favourite films that included Hocus Pocus, because Hocus Pocus is great. And that cheered me up. So that was you go. your go-to frothy? Witches. I wasn't really in the mood for Taylor Swift, which is my normal go-to. <laughs> <laughs> but like, is a go-to frothy podcast? I don't know, I'd probably go for something like... Like Disney montage, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, if that's a podcast, Alex, <laughs> yeah, okay, send me find, the link. I will find it, or I will make you one personally. Okay, for times you need frothing, <laughs> or listeners, send me a link to your Disney montage yes, podcast. There you go. I think what's actually an interesting point about that is that you you've read the book before, haven't you, Kim? I have. I read it last um, year. Yeah, but you listened to yeah, it as a podcast, and that? and the. The way that lecture at the end is described when they're talking about finding the story is it's through a series of tapes, essentially, mm. and recordings. So Offred is mm. relating her story. Uh, and it's, a, you know, the story's told in the first person. So it's kind of like you were listening to it as it was meant to be read. Mm. If that makes sense? Yeah, I thought about that a little bit because of, of the point that you make. And a lot of the time whilst I was listening to it, I kept thinking, it does make a lot more sense that it would be, from her point of view, spoken. um, Because she might be recording it in fits and starts. Whereas if you're writing something down, you can go back and rub it out. Yeah. You can edit it. Yeah. Um, But I still found it really jarring. And I found it particularly jarring because the audio that I listened to, she's English. Oh, weird. And it's very much set in America. She yeah. talks. Mm. It's, very... it's actually really set in Maine. That's about it. It's I not even it was set... set in Boston. I think when they talk about it in the lecture, they mention Maine. Because they talk about... New England. It's, yeah, it's New England. New but they England. talk about um, Harvard being the place that the... Yeah. That's where the wall is. That's where the bodies are strung up, is Harvard University. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, good point. Fair enough. Um... But yeah, it, but it's, it's New, New England. England. Yeah. It's very yeah. much New but England. It's really interesting that they chose a an British... English narrator. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I noticed it from the off, and it bugged me from the off, um, hmm. from the second that it happened. And I think that there is an audio recording where, um, who is it? It might be Rosamund Pike does it i remember that it came out as a special edition before the tv show but this one has the um tv show cover okay weird um so i found that really jarring i i also i was listening to it at 1.5 speed five speed no 1.5 speed oh, right, not five speed. speed. i'm not I'm <laughs> a fucking superhero I'm not the it's because you said at 1.5 speed so in my head you went at one point 
Five speed. No, no. The uh, one, I in my head, I thought you were in a car listening to it doing five miles an hour. <laughs> I was like, okay, Kim. No, like, I was. Where are you going? Listening to her speak slightly unnaturally fast. Yeah. And I felt that. I felt like the audio didn't even with that didn't go as fast as I felt it did when I read the book. The book was a lot more compelling and it's maybe because I already know what's going to happen and it's maybe because she was English it's maybe because I had work so I was kind of you know interrupted ugh life but <laughs> it it didn't seem to engross me quite as much on audio as it did to sit when read. I was reading it because when I read it for the first time I read it for the first time last year I read it on a Sunday morning in bed I didn't get out of bed and then mm-hmm. I read the book and then I got it was great nice. Okay, so that was your experience with it as an audio mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Alex, what about you in the series? Because you hadn't, you've not read the book. You just came into no. it to watch the. Is it, it's Hulu and MGM, isn't it, that created it? I think so. Yeah, and um, I suppose that I had a kind of love hate relationship with the series. Um, I kind of do like a binge, and I do it with a lot of series, but yeah. I binge watch. And then get so kind of taken into this world and then feel really disorientated and then have to take, like, months off. Right. So, (laughs) and obviously, like, with something like The Handmaid's Tale, that was, that there was many months that needed Mm -hmm. to be taken off. So, I watched the first couple of episodes a really, really long time ago, came back to another couple, and then I actually only watched the last episode last week. Oh, okay. Right. Um, So, it was really broken up and I don't know I really connected with the characters really early on and then I don't know if having that break then made me kind of uh like just disconnect completely okay so towards the end I didn't I did obviously care what happened to these characters but you'd broken that I'd broken that connection and also I think um I wasn't surprised by anything they put in front of me okay interesting and it's it's so shocking that I was I was also surprised at myself that I was then yeah. n- not surprised or or upset yeah. by what was happening um, because it's obviously designed to be distressing to watch. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, but I think there's parts of it that are really beautiful. And I know that's a really weird adjective to use. It's a beautifully shot series. Yeah. It's visually incredible. Yeah, and taking myself back to when I really did connect to those characters, I yeah, it was an emotional roller coaster and I was quite upset by a lot of it. Yep. So for me, the key differences between the two um the two mediums, I suppose, that I experienced the story in. The TV series is 10 episodes, an hour long each, so well, roughly an hour, 50 minutes. Yeah, so it's yeah. Um, it's long. It's intense. <laughs> it's intense. In the audio yeah, books, you binge watch. The audiobook's 13 hours, I think. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, you know, less if you're speeding, speeding it up. Speeding it up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it means that the series gets to cover a lot more go into more depth than the book does. There's a lot of things that happen in season one that do not happen in the book. Um, Generally, though, the core part of the story is the same. It starts the same way. The characters, for the most part, have the same background. 
Um, but there are some key differences. One of the differences that I found the most jarring for me was that in the book, um, Serena Joy and the Commander are meant to be around, I'm going to say in their 50s. Oh, okay. In the series, uh, Joseph Fiennes and the lady who plays Serena Joy are probably about late 30s, early yeah. 40s. Um, and really quite attractive yes. as well. Yes, and quite attractive people, um, rather than an old man. And I think that's a bit of a shame because the there's something sl- because of the way we are conditioned to look at um, age gap relations. What I say, mm. relationships. Um, to us, I think it would be more jarring to see an older man uh, essentially rape a younger woman. Um, I'm not saying that that is any worse than any other kind of rape but to watch I think it would be harder to watch for mm. some reason um, but because this is an attractive cast because TV because TV it makes it feel more Hollywood and more mm. um, but I suppose and I know, I know it sounds awful but you almost could believe that in in a different world they could be in a relationship yes and yes obviously it is forcible like it it's it's rape and it's awful yeah. and barbaric and she's not choosing to be in that position mm. but at one point it definitely happens i think in the series like you almost think oh are they connecting yeah there's um and so you almost believe that relationship more there's a lot of it feels like relationships are building and then they're torn away yeah which which maybe you wouldn't believe if he was cast as an older guy does it feel like they could have had an affair it like if you you not knowing the story watched that relationship yeah. play out did you feel oh maybe she's gonna fall for him i mean i obviously uh i mean she plays it so well yeah and you're always constantly on her side and so therefore you would hope and assume she doesn't but i think there are definite hints that that could play out mm. yeah and so therefore it might not have been believable that layer if it was an older guy i think that it's it was an interesting casting choice and i think it was um primarily to appeal more to audiences by putting an attractive man as the main lead um which seems it feels Sorry. a bit of a shame um but i do think having said that that joseph Fiennes plays it really well because he is much he feels much sleazier to watch in person than Commander Waterford comes across in the books. Um, Interesting. He does. He does Waterford seems. He's, he's not necessarily named, is he, in the books? Until, no, he's not named. It's until the lecture when they're discussing the yeah. possible identity. He's just she's referred to named. as the commander. And yeah, in the series, her name is June um, slash Offred because he's Fred, so she's Offred. Um, but in the book, she's just Offred. In the, yeah, in the book, she's just a Fred, and she doesn't... Um, the reason they've called her June is because there's a line at the end of the first chapter where um, they're ta- she's talking about being in the Red Centre, which is where the handmaids are trained before they're sent to their posting with the commanders, um, and she reels off a list of names because they whisper them to each other, yeah. and June is the only name that is mentioned there that isn't then mentioned again in another context in the book, so that's mm. why she's called June. Interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. And I know that because there's a forward in the edition that I read, which was one that came out, um, a new edition that was published last year, I think, just 
before the series came out. Um, and Margaret Margaret Atwood has written that forward, and it's kind of delving more into what the Handmaid's Tale means now. But we'll come back to that later because mm-hmm. there's quite a few interesting points. Cool. Um, to go back to talking about the casting, because um, we're making some really interesting points about the male lead, but we're not talking about Offred. Mm. And um, mm. I've not seen the show, but obviously I know who is in it. Um, what do you make of Elizabeth Moss? Who as plays Offred? An Offred. I absolutely love her, but I am very prone to reading a book and then watching a series or a film and being really really upset with casting so obviously i only know her as offred yeah um but i think just like her honesty and what goes on behind her eyes is so deep that i just yeah Mm. i i did fall in love with her a little bit as offred but like i said i i don't know how she comes across in the book so i don't know if that was good casting for the character that you had created my question is really it's something that someone brought up to me and i have seen articles related to it including um responses from elizabeth moth herself who sort of doesn't agree with this comparison but elizabeth elizabeth moss is a noted scientologist oh i did not know that given now i don't feel that Scientology and Gilead are comparable in the extreme but Scientology certainly has a lot of controversial things surrounding it including the treatment of women Um, and I do not want to you know get taken down or anything like that and I certainly I know <laughs> that down. Tom Cruise is going to come to your house <laughs> he's going he's gonna to come through my ceiling he's going to abseil in through two from flats the Burj Khalifa me. and then trip you up apparently <laughs> um, <laughs> because he's so small yes. <laughs> so small um, but so I know that Elizabeth Moss has come out to defend Scientology against fans who have compared it to Gilead but I, I wonder I know people who have said I refuse to watch the show because she was cast and I don't agree with that. Oh, interesting. Hmm. I, I literally have missed all of that. Um, I kind of knew, which is why I didn't say anything earlier. So oh, I okay. Ask oh, you guys yeah. sneaky. I know, I'm so smart. Smart. <laughs> I, so I, I didn't know she was a Scientologist, but, you know, honestly, I don't really care in terms of her casting. Um, because I think she was good, and you should I give the job yeah. to someone who is good at it. Because I'm I'm playing devil's advocate. Uh, why I agree that um, no one should be um, kept from work because of their religion, or their race, or their gender. Mm-hmm. People are, and that's very much a theme of this book, and mm-hmm. it's very much a problem with Hollywood. But well, then, surely these people then that are questioning it are just as bad. As but this what is we're this talking. is my point. Yeah. By by choosing to exclude someone because of their belief and because of this from the casting of a show about exclusion, yeah, it's, it's completely eating into the yeah. world that we're that's been created. Like, yeah, so your kettle. Yeah, it's it's that's a tricky one. And um, in all honesty, I don't know the answer. Uh, but I do think that 
you should give so unless it is a job in which someone's beliefs or morality is going to compromise the yeah. job if that ha- if that is going to affect the job then you that's a different matter but yeah. and act actors believe all kinds of crazy, crazy shit, shit. um <laughs> so, so, so kind of person yeah um so i don't i don't agree that that should have kept her from being cast fair enough um, before we take a hard left into another topic, um, obviously still talking about The Handmaid's Tale, I wanted to check in on how everyone's enjoying the wine, seeing as we've all finished our first glasses. It's so sweet. It's so sweet. <laughs> it's so sweet. And normally I like sweet wine, but it is... Yeah. I feel like I need Ooh. to brush my teeth continuously for yes. hours. It's like drinking a cherry bakewell. Yeah. I feel like I'm drinking one of those, like, panda pops. Oh, yes! yes! Panda pops! Um, Nostalgic. What flavour is it? Blue! <laughs> yeah. That's not a flavour. This would be excellent in an alcoholic slush puppy. Is all I'm it saying. would be great for cocktails. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's um, very syrupy. I think it, that it is, is very syrupy. I think with some nice soda water and a little bit of mint. It does suggest mint, that. Yes, you know, oh, ice nice. and soda water. Unfortunately, we have none of that. Oh, uh, we have ice, and I can imagine it being nice, mulled and heated. See. But with like cinnamon in it to make just, it less. Oh, no, I'd rather just have more wine. Oh no, I don't think cinnamon. It would go like syrupy. But it's already pretty syrupy though. Yeah, so heat it up and it's like glue. Yeah. Okay. Well, so a mixed bag, but sweet. If you yeah. like sweet wines, <laughs> yeah. if you're a fan of dessert wines, this would be. See, you. I don't even think this is dessert wine because dessert wine always has a bit of a tang to it. This is this is for it's pure sugar. This is wine for people who don't like wine. Yeah. 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 Um. This is. Yeah, this is wine to go in cocktails that involve wine. Would make a great purple rain, for example. Ooh, would make a great yeah. purple rain. Or, um, yeah. yeah, basically, it would make a great shit mix. <laughs> <laughs> also, yeah. I imagine, really good to cook with and looks lovely on a shelf. What would you cook with it? Cherries. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but yeah. Come round to mine for a bowl of cooked cherry. You poach pears and wine. It's my favourite dish. That's a fair point, yeah. I hadn't so, thought about poaching. P- poaching pears or something. Ooh, because yeah. in my head, I was like, I was thinking of when you put wine in like a bolognese or a curry. No, yeah, no, I would not put that in a bolognese or a curry. No, no, no. Definitely desserts. Right. Or to um, deglaze a pan. But this is not a cooking podcast, so. On that note, time. top me up. <laughs> yeah, who wants some more wine? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. fine, we can move on to the, uh, the cheap shit all. later. <laughs> yeah, we have some cheap shit. I, I have tried to pair the bottle of wine that I bought vaguely with the book, but I will explain that when we get onto it. Cool. And it's the Sorry loosest... It's it's the most tenuous link that ever. But yeah, <laughs> I, have a, I haven't paired mine, FYI. It was the cheapest one. Well, that's because the official paired wine is this one. That's the, yeah, number one. Okay. I wanted to go back to something that you both were saying about the TV show, um, because it was a quote in the book that really stuck out to me. Obviously, we're using the word rape a lot. Um, In the book, she very emphatically says, I couldn't even call it rape because I was given a choice. Not much, but I was given one and I chose this. Yes. And what, what is the choice? To, well, you were, she was given the choice to be a handmaid or she was given the choice to be sent to the colonies, which uh, the colonies aren't really discussed that much in the show at all. Well, not in the first series. It becomes more of a feature in the second series oh, okay. from what I've read. Um, created, so Gilead is the name of the state that overtook mm. the United States. Um, it became a thing because of a perceived nuclear threat from outside because nuclear uh, missiles have been dropped on the United States 
the colonies are the areas of the states and the surrounding area that were bombed. So they're essentially nuclear wastelands. Um, And people who are dissidents or who misbehave or anything like that are sent there to clean it up. Uh, I do actually remember it being used as a threat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I didn't so, realise that people actually really lived there, or you were given that cho- a choice initially. It's somewhat <laughs> ambiguous whether they actually exist uh, okay. in the book. Uh, n- they always yes say, no. is, are they actors? Is it is it as bad as they say? But do you remember in the book? So in the book as well, this is another difference. Sorry, we're getting slightly off track, but it is relevant to what we're saying. Um in the book, there is a much stronger development of um, Offred's relationship with her mother. Her mother isn't even mentioned in the first season of the series. No. Really? At all. Um, that but surprises in me. This, yeah, in the book, she's a lot more prevalent. And um, I think it's Moira, when she meets her in Jezebel's, tells her that she saw her mother in a video about the colonies picking up, like clearing up toxic waste, basically. Yes. Oh. But my point to that was... That's a video which the system are showing of how bad the colonies are. Yeah, yeah. I didn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, there is obviously a world outside Gilead, whether it's as bad as Gilead is saying it is. Yeah, fair point. So whether it's being used as propaganda. Yes, yeah. precisely. Mm, okay. Much like basically everything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically people are given that choice. Um, so she chose to become a handmaid, which... Uh, we haven't actually explained what a handmaid is, um, but I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you have some knowledge of the book uh, or the series, because why would you listen to this depressing shit otherwise? It's um, based on the biblical story <laughs> of Sarah and Rachel, and it is that um, Sarah didn't have babies, so she... Bila, that's her name, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, no, Rachel or someone else. Oh, fuck it, I haven't read the Bible in ages. So uh, essentially, um, because of the drop-off in... Um, Birth rates, fertile women are made in ha- or become handmaids, whether through choice or not, is kind of your. Uh, it depends on your definition of choice, mm. um, and they move into the household of high-ranking of government officials and their wives, where they then have to have sex with the um, male lead of the house in order to create a baby, but the baby is raised as the wife's. The, the the commander and the wife's child the handmaid just basically births it and then has nothing to do with it baby factory like breastfeeds it and then has to leave yeah, yeah rears it to the point that it can be taken away from her yeah um so yes we have been using the word rape because it's obviously not a regime in which you, uh, the choice is really a choice at all uh it's the choice of a lesser of two evils but that doesn't make it any less evil mm. and i also think in the book she says oh it's not a choice it's not you know it's a choice that i've made Mm. um but she also later on she gets so angry and it's it's very much that kind of victim blaming element that you see in in conversations about sexual assault and rape so oh you know i i I led him on and all that sort of stuff it's that kind of thing oh no but i i was there i went on the day i i had too much drink it's that but to the extreme of well I chose this because I did I was selfish and I didn't want to go to the colonies or I didn't want to be she says at one point I could never be a Martha I never wanted to be a Martha because I would suck at cleaning or whatever it is it's so boring um and she's trying to make her situation better surely like I mean I suppose you know we're saying that rape victims sometimes like try to rationalize it um but um I think she's stuck in this situation so continuously 
that she's trying to find the the lightness in it and trying to make it kind of better for herself rather than just feeling like a victim constantly. Mm. She's trying to hold on to her agency. She's try- yeah. She, yeah, she's trying to have some, some form of control, even if that control is... I chose this, so yeah. I made this happen. And even if what she made happen, or made happen, um, air quotes, even if it's awful, she did it. So it's her asserting some sort of control. Yeah. Um, it's good. I have a point. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the subject of this and how she kind of differentiates herself from rape victims, she, she makes this point to say, I'm not being raped. At another point in the book, she talks about in the before time how they used to read newspapers and stuff and say they'd hear these stories but it was always someone other it was always on the periphery of their experience they were so privileged that they never it was never them who was being sexually assaulted or Mm. murdered or raped or everything it was never their their experience and i thought that was really interesting because the first time i read this book was last year it was obviously written long before that listening to it again this year in the wake Mm. of me too where Mm -hmm. even when you think oh it's on the periphery it's on the periphery Mm -hmm. turns out no i've had negative experiences with men that make people afraid that some people deal with in one way and some people do not and mine are in the grand scheme of things small and blessedly so just because it's something seemingly not as not you're not the worst you're not the saddest you're not the most attacked does not mean that you have not been in some way assaulted violated yeah offended made to feel uncomfortable yeah made to feel uncomfortable and i found that her conversation with moira about um it being on the periphery them reading the newspapers and them always being someone else i don't think that that's true now and i don't think it was true then and i think the first time that i read it I thought, yeah. Mm. I thought, oh, you know, like, I I myself have never truly experienced anything like that. We didn't talk about it that openly. Whilst I did know people who've had negative experiences, it was not the way it is now, where it's like, oh, shit, no, everyone has had something and that needs to change. And so Mm. it felt more, when I listened to it this time, like she was justifying it to herself. Whereas when I Mm. read it the first time, I thought she meant it. Yep. So we're going to have a brief interlude whilst I go get the second bottle of wine. Um, for the folks at home, we really are drinking this fast, Soz. And we're back with our second bottle of wine, which was bought by Sam. Sam, would you like to briefly go into why you chose this, why you brought this white wine into my house? <laughs> so I have chosen uh, an Albarino from, uh, from Sainsbury's because... Um, the prime reason was that I had a text from Kim before we came to record saying, if you want any wine, please bring it. Uh, and I knew that one bottle would not be enough for us. So I went into Sainsbury's and I decided that white wine would be better because ending on a second bottle of red, well, reddish would probably kill us all. Um, and not me, not you, because that's what you drink. And I had a bottle and a half of red last night and I kind of wanted to die. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I chose this one because it is called... Uh, I'm not going to try and say it because I think it's in Spanish. It is in Spanish. Please Produce, try. Please Produce try. Produce this No. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it in a really English way. Um, Marquez de Almeida. <laughs> Love it. 
Oh, off, off of the chippy. Off the chippy, yeah. 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 Oh, Oi, Pedro, so do you do chips? Like every British person in Spain. Um, so <laughs> the main reason I chose it is because there's a character in Handmaid's Tale called Alma, and this has the word Alma in it. Oh, I love it. That is tenuous as fuck. As I love it. Fuck. I mean, I did look more at... more or less tenuous than cherry wine. I looked at the Oyster Bay and was like, are there oysters in Handmaid's Tale? <laughs> and then went there, they're so that's why I chose this one. And it is vegan and it costs nine British pounds. Ooh, nine of your British you pounds. Treat I do. Only the finest for you. I paid four pounds sixty. It oh, that's why that's the third bottle. Yeah. <laughs> and has no link to the handmaid's No. Cheers. 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 <laughs> Tastes like pineapples. It do taste like pineapples. Oh, white wine Ooh. tastes like pineapples. It's it's really unusual, but I quite like it. It's quite... It's woody. <laughs> woody. <laughs> um, it's quite fruity and crisp, I would say, but I wouldn't call it necessarily a sweet wine, mainly because we've just drunk that sugar water um, that Kim got. Kim does not like. Kim is going to drink it anyway because it's wine and she won't let it go to waste. Fucking true. I can taste apricots. Really? Yeah. I can Have taste you done... wine. Have you done your wine sniffing face? Have you done that properly? No, because I didn't do it well earlier and I just didn't want to. Yeah. Right, make a chincident. Chincident. But it's yeah. really far away. My chin's you, getting in the way. You, no, you do that and you hold it there, mate. Oh, sorry. I was holding it below my chin. <laughs> Alex was trying to sniff wine with her chin. <laughs> if you would like to donate to this podcast so that Alex can get some fucking wine tasting lessons. Yeah. Woo! Right. Just send it to me and if I'll teach her. taught fine. me better, then I'm going to So on with the topic of white privilege. So, <laughs> white privilege and wine privilege. Um, the topic that I touched on at the top of the show when I was introducing the cherry wine by Lancaster Wines um, is that a few months ago, a company who shall remain nameless because you can easily Google it, and we will put a link in the show notes, decided to release a limited edition selection of uh, wines, obviously, based on The Handmaid's Tale. That included, I think it was a complex Pinot Noir. I'm just letting the link load because I'm really professional I and I didn't load it ahead of time. Referred to as a seductive Pinot Noir. Oh, yeah. Oh. Here we go. Um, this, wanting more or something like that. This is from uh, The Guardian's article, Is the Handmaid's Tale wine collection the worst tie-in ever? The answer is yes. Offred, played by Elizabeth Moss, is imagined as a Pinot Noir so beguiling it seems almost forbidden to taste. That is a quote from the tasting notes. Oh. This is egregious on so many levels. Blah, 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 blah. The description refers to both the wine and Offred as seductive before oh. stating it's useless to resist the wine's smooth and appealingly earthy profile. Oh so God. you may as well give in. God, For context, so awful. everyone is cringing like down into their necks, including producer Holly, who <laughs> I could literally just downed wine. the cherry wine that she had left because it's that bad. And that shit is hard to down. Um, moving on to Oglin, who like over two seasons has like been subjected to a forced clitoridectomy. Fucking, I can't even say that. Oh yeah, that. in the TV show, she uh, has her clitoris removed. Beautiful. 
Uh, just what everyone was which, which character, sorry? Of Glenn. Of Glenn, the, uh, her shopping partner in the original part. Oh, gosh, yeah. Just some casual female genital mutilation thrown oh. in for good measure. So, Of Glenn is imagined as a Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, bold Cabernet Sauvignon, which aptly hails from the Rouge Valley. No, Rogue Valley. Uh, is it Rogue Valley? It's Rogue, Rogue Valley. Fucking both of them. Like, terrible. oh, she's such a badass. This bottle of this wine promising the kind of pleasure and enjoyment prescribed Uh, in Gilead will cost you $20. I've just pulled my own scarf around my throat in an attempt to not hear anymore. And finally, a Bordeaux Blanc in recognition of Serena Joy, the televangelist turned trophy wife. Bordeaux form Serena Joy is sophisticated, traditional and austere. A wine we were advised not to judge too quickly or we might miss out on a sublime experience. Oh I, God. How, I want how to crawl inside myself when I do this. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> that was producer Someone Holly. Someone <laughs> thought that this was a good idea. Now, drinking wine and watching Handmaid's Tale, as we've discussed, not a bad thing. You kind of fucking need it sometimes. You know, drink responsibly. But pairing wine and trying to describe wine to the personalities or vision of women who are subjected to systematic abuse, rape and oppression is a terrible fucking marketing ploy. And what the fuck were they thinking? It's like literally made me vom a little in my mouth. I have a question, right? If you were to create a Handmaid's Tale wine... Okay. What would your tasting notes be? Cherry wine. Tastes like oppression. Um, like, just would you? Like, like my what? tasting notes would be, why the fuck are you buying this? What the hell is wrong with you? I think unpalatable would be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and therefore it wouldn't be sold because no bitter one would buy after- it and therefore don't bother. Yeah. Bitter <laughs> aftertaste. Bitter aftertaste. This bitter general taste. Maybe really. you go blind. I just um, don't think might anyone make you should have tried to make money off mm. of like and I, I know you know essentially like essentially you're making money off the novels and the series of course you are but it is it is, it is an art form that is trying to uh get people talking like we are um and to hold up a mirror to the world and um you know get people thinking as well whereas selling wine and describing it is seductive Wine that's $20 a bottle. I mean, when I pay £4.60, like, (laughs) that is extortionate. So hang on, what we're getting into now is the price (laughs) of this. The price of this luxury (laughs) item based on a world with rationing and oppression and fucking hovels and just, oh, I can't even. I'd be interested how many bottles they sold. They, they sold they none. Recalled it. They, they recalled it. They recalled it. Because they got so much backlash that they were like, shit, Ooh, maybe a bad it's idea. A bad idea. Speaking of things that are a bad idea related to The Handmaid's Tale, sexy Handmaid's Tale Halloween oh, costume. Oh, my life. That is so awful. I know what I'm not dressing up as as Halloween. So... For anyone who hasn't seen these, uh, it's the, the handmaids wear a, a uniform that is basically red robes and um, a white cap, like a kind of an old Dutch sort of style cap. Um, and they're very, they're very much look like an old master yeah. in um, the way they're portrayed. The sexy Halloween costume. Mm. Um, Kim, do you want to describe it? No. No. Um, imagine <laughs> that 
but with no fabric <laughs> and just a hat and some small red strips. Oh, and some fishnets. I want some fishnets yeah. because nothing says systematic oppression like a fishnet leg. Imagine a little latex tube stretched over an adult woman with a oh. little white cap. Like a human condom. And dead eyes <laughs> they have to be dead and a complete lack of awareness or compassion and you have a sexy handmaid's tale halloween costume they couldn't call it um they couldn't link it to handmaid's tale though could they, they called it like hand servant or something they like that fucking didn't they tried yeah. yeah they did that thing that all brands that do a knockoff version do where they're like oh uh i can't think of an example um, but like, like instead, like, of, instead of Snow White, they call her like Poisoned Princess or yes. something like that. And yeah, like yeah. Special Wizard Boy. Special Boy. Wizard Boy. to save money or do you think it's because there is no way that people that like, well, it would have been licensed would ever sign it off? Well, apparently they licensed the wine. I've also just noticed, sorry to get off topic, but Kim has a book on her bookshelf here called Gilead. What is that? I do. It's by Marilyn Robson and I've never read it. Ooh. And I don't know the Ooh. connection. Sorry. Okay. Well, we'll get back to you on what the connection to that is. It's on my list. It's a favourite of Book Riot. I've had it for years. I'm a terrible person and keep books for years unread. I think that's what everyone who likes books does, to be fair. Yeah. Um, um, okay. So, yeah, don't dress up as sexy handmaid. Don't dress uh, up as a sexy handmaid. Don't drink wine that is no longer in existence, but try to liken wine to oppressed women. No. Do what we do and just pick if, high alcohol wine. If you work in marketing... How's everyone finding the Alma Mine? Alma, Alma Mine? Alma, Alma Mine. Wine. Alma Wine. Albarino. Um, it's yeah. more palatable now. Okay. I think it's because we drank such sweet wine. Um, and then this was <laughs> That wine was in wine. air quotes. <laughs> um, I think they got that from my tone. Kim. Well, you know what? Sometimes you've got to spell this out for them. Wine. We are on a podcast. Yeah, that's true. Who um, I Yeah, I quite like it. But I am a. I do enjoy a white wine. Yeah, I'm a white fan. Before we start talking about our next topic, not talking about horrible, horrible Handmaid's Tale tie-ins, how's everyone finding the Alma wine? Alma is very quaffable, in my opinion, but yeah. I like white wine. It's um, not that kind of dry wine where you go... You know oh, what see, I mean? I like a dry though. I bet that sounded great on the mic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Delightful. Um I no, I'm quite enjoying it. Um I enjoy a dry wine. Um it's very palatable. Mm. Kimberly, what about you? You don't like white normally. Tastes like pineapples. <laughs> Tastes like pineapples. You're still drinking it, so I'm st- yeah, but wine in it. I will drink most things <laughs> that aren't Sambuca. Okay, well, we're not just necking Sambuca whilst talking not about yet. the handmade sale. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Oh, no, it's um, it's nice. If it were brought to a dinner table in which we were serving fish, I would drink it. Or tofu. No, fish. No. <laughs> or roast cauliflower. No. Because I wouldn't eat For our roast vegan listeners. cauliflower. <laughs> um, no, yeah, if I were in a situation in which everyone wanted to drink white wine, I'd be perfectly happy to drink this white wine. It wouldn't be my first choice. It certainly wouldn't be my last choice. Tastes like pineapples. Okay, good What chance. are the tasting notes on it? Pineapples. It's just a picture of a pineapple. I better fucking say pineapples. It's pineapple. I think it does. Uh, if it says apricots, I win. Peach and apricot. <gasps> yes! Alex's tasting with her chin clearly helps. If 
exactly. I'm like tropical one fruits, concern. tropical fruits, and peach. Pineapple is the tropical fruit. Yeah, but it doesn't specifically say. Yeah, well, fuck you. <laughs> it also doesn't say pair it with roast cauliflower. What's your point? Yeah, because you know they don't think about the vegan happiness. It's a vegan wine. It's got the word vegan on it in big yeah, words. Yeah, because they have to. No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't actually. I'm very grateful that they have. Thank you, Sainsbury's. <clears throat> so next topic. What's something that I'm really interested in? Because when the TV show was being developed, and when even before that, when it was optioned by Hulu to be developed, was well before Trump's America. Um, mm-hmm. That's just the nature of TV. They take a long time to develop. It turned out to be particularly timely. I'm wondering, though, do you think that the TV show is reaching more people than the book? Yeah, a good point. I think that there, as we've discussed, some of the sort of um, modern contextual things that have resonance with *The Handmaid's Tale*. Um, we have we ever have we ever? There's a lot of stuff that seemed to be mirroring what was happening in *The Handmaid's Tale* when the second season went out. Um, so, for example, there's one scene where um, June's daughter Hannah is torn away from her. Um, that was aired in the middle of the um, family separation stuff at the Mexico border. Mm. Um, There was something else that happened. Um, Yeah, so I think... I think it's something that people find... No, I don't want to say more relatable, because... More accessible, and therefore they relate to it. I think think there's an element of it being scarier now yeah um in the same way that when we read 1984 that despite being written in the 40s mm. was pretty fucking scary because it had a lot of parallels with now so i think yeah i think also uh people are so much more aware of politics now yes um everyone I- is woke well, like, and I don't know if it's the rise of social media or what it is, or like the fact that Brexit happened and suddenly, like, every Pretty single generation so cool. has a, has an opinion or or whatever it is. But um, I, I think I definitely think politics is more um, mainstream. people more mainstream than it ever was before, and definitely more than when I was younger. I didn't really know much about politics about uh, apart from what my parents told me, and therefore my opinion was my parents. Um, but I think people are allowed to form their own opinions about politics nowadays. And so therefore um, they can relate uh, series or books or whatever it might be to things that are happening in their everyday a lot more than maybe they ever could before. That you don't really understand. And that's what kind of keeps Gilead under the... Yeah, I, sp- I suppose I'm thinking of the more subtle things. Yeah. Um, which may be uh, the well-read or well-educated or people that are really into politics would have been able to go oh this relates to this or this relates to this whereas now literally the person that has access to twitter has an opinion and can go actually this is mirroring this thing that happened the other day that i read about so that kind of answers what i was going to do my follow-up question which was do you think it's reaching different people Mm -hmm. i think i think that it has always reached people, this book has always reached people in the way that 1984 has always reached people and we did have notes to compare the two. Um, but I do think that it's reaching different people and I think that it's reaching different people 
first through the TV show and secondly through the book. I certainly had never read it before. It was not one of my set texts. Um, and I always was always aware of it, but to be honest, because I um, I live in the 19th century in terms of literature <laughs> and because I briefly studied uh, fucking restoration literature in which there's a similar titled book, but it's not called the same thing. I was very much like, no, I don't want to read that because it's going to be either modern stuff that I don't want to read or it's going to be archaic stuff that I don't want to read. My tastes have advanced significantly since then. But at the time when I was at university and it was more in my field of view, I didn't want to read it. I came to read it because I planned to watch the TV show and then read it and was like, fuck this, I'm not watching a TV show about this. Um, Because I don't watch that much TV anyway and I didn't want to spend my energy on that. But I do think that it's reaching different people. Mm. Yes. We've talked about how... There are the, the, you know, the two, the mummy and daddy of dystopian literature are 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. They get compared a lot. They are both being compared to the current political climate. Yeah. But an interesting thing to note is that when Trump was elected and in the run up to Trump's election, 1984 hit the bestseller list again. Did it? 1984 mm-hmm. has never left Hilarious. the charts, really. Um, but it sold out everywhere. You could not get a copy, not even a secondhand copy. It is one of the hardest books for um, secondhand bookshops to keep hold of alongside Catcher in the Rye. Um, It's more famously dystopian and it gets more famously talked about. I think without the TV show, we would not have spoken about The Handmaid's Tale. I'm wondering why, because I personally feel that the Handmaid's Tale is more relevant to the current political climate in America, which is interesting because 1984 is what I thought I would identify with because it's set in England. Yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah, I think that 1984, for me, again, maybe it is that geographical distance, but I found 1984 utterly fucking terrifying um mainly because of the stuff with so google and facebook and this kind of data mining thing and the fact that you are always being watched whether you know you are or not um and that was something that (sighs) at the time i was like fucking up and although the handmaid's tale is obviously a terrifying world it it's not a world that we're currently living in it to that extreme i don't think i i think that it's what's scary about the handmaid's tale is that you can see it happening mm. there's like Nin- ripples there are ripples there's a way that you can see the trump administration doing something utterly fucking ridiculous like this mm. but 1984 i found scarier because to me those things are already happening mm. interesting what i thought though when i was listening to it again was the she says, of course there were marches. Men and, you know, like women and some men. And I thought, because um, obviously the marches, the women's march was a huge thing, a huge thing. And it's not, sorry, it's not getting us anywhere. It's, it's not got yeah. rid of them. <laughs> well, yeah, like, I mean, 
what does a march do really like i know it sounds awful but like obviously it shows like a sheer number of people that stand up against something and i'm all up for marches i really am but in today's world uh, technology marches are almost taking over so like you know is in like shares of something or likes of something or whatever so you mean I sheer numbers in terms so. of sheer media. numbers in terms of virtual world as opposed uh, to seeing a sheer number I like march but I think in this, I I think in this sort of world of everything being, uh, of the um the social media politician, should we say, where everyone expresses their opinion through liking, through sharing, through doing that. I think it's more powerful now to see people out on the streets because. Oh, it, I'm not saying it's not powerful. I'm just saying like like both like I, I think both are equally powerful in today's world. And we, what is achieving what is what I mean. I think, um, yeah. Like, and are they both achieving the same thing, or actually are they achieving anything? I think exposure definitely, and we'll, you know, the fact that we're talking about this right now, it's obviously rippled, like we were saying, through through um, people's consciousness. Yeah. Um, but is that from the marches? Is that from uh, TV shows? Is that from uh, social media? Like, or maybe it's a combination of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, my opinion of social media activism is that while it is good there is a habit of people to think, well, I liked that status. I'm a good person. Pat on the back to me. I've done my part. Whereas I think marches, the people who are running the country, the people, all the countries, the people who are fucking everything up for everyone, they don't give a shit about social media. They don't look at it. They don't care about it. They do not see it as an impact. You cannot ignore 40,000 people on your doorstep. Or you could, well, at least that's the dream anyway. No, that's true, but I I don't know if I agree with the fact that you like it just to feel. I mean, some people maybe do like it to feel better about themselves, um, but that's not to say that people marching aren't doing. No, it I don't for, mean that they do. I don't mean well. that they do it to feel better about themselves. I mean that they think I have liked that status. I've done my bit. I've done my bit. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair. And I also think that given the temporary nature of social media, especially with something like Twitter, where things disappear within a day. Or um, don't like because they come up to bite people on the ass numerous times. Yes, that's true. And there's for a lot of people, there's a public record of what they've said because of social media. But everything is so temporary. There's it, the lack of effort it takes to create something on social media, a movement or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not saying that the movements aren't powerful because the Me Too hashtag Me Too thing was obviously on social media as well. Yeah, but. It's always going to be replaced with something. Something's always going to overtake it. Something's yeah, it's always suppose, like yeah. within a twenty-four hour news cycle, like we said, it's going to disappear like that. Whereas I suppose, like a photograph of people who were there, who lived it in the moment, mm. that made a difference. Mm. So actually, I totally, I get that. Yeah. How does this book or the show actually make us feel? Because I feel like I can't say that I enjoy it. I did not enjoy reading The Handmaid's Tale. I think it's a fantastic book. I have rated it highly on my Goodreads. But to say that I enjoyed it is... would feel wrong. I think we used the word appreciated earlier, Mm -hmm. and that's certainly how I feel, but I also feel like there's something stronger than appreciate for this book. I think it resonates highly. I think it's important. I wonder how you feel, both of you, about the show. I also think that it would be nice to leave with some positives. <laughs> I, yes, it's been I, very intense. Yeah, I, I mean, 
I suppose the positive for me is I feel empowered. And yes, this conversation, this podcast has been quite dark at times and, you know, we haven't all agreed on certain things and we've delved into certain things. Um, But I feel empowered as a woman in this modern world where actually we're not standing for things and we're not going to let this happen. Hmm. Um, how did it make me feel? It's a good question. I don't feel anything. I'm numb and dead inside. Dead inside, pickled. Um, but I think for me, um, I appreciate it as a work of literature because it is a work of literature that is going to stand for a long time regardless of what happens I think mm-hmm. um, in the future I think uh, actually that's a good point um, that I was going to mention earlier but I'm just going to mention it briefly now so we talked earlier about the lecture at the end of the Handmaid's Tale mm. that explains it and contextualises it within the, the confines of, of this universe that she set up we read the Penelope ad yeah. recently which was also a Margaret Atwood book in which she uses the same format and at one point, she uses a lecture. Um, oh, she does, yeah. To discuss it, and I just find it interesting that she, despite using prose to tell this story and to potentially warn people to um, almost tell it as a preventative story, mm. um, she returns to this educational viewpoint, this established seat of learning to try and tell you facts about the story yeah. or to tell you more about the story yeah it's, it's a narrative form that she used a few times and so that actually made me enjoy that bit at the end less because i felt like i was being preached at i think it's a warning i don't i don't think it's a preaching i think it's a it's a warning that this very much can be taught in schools and university i thought it was hopeful Mm, yeah, like that's what I mean. Like, so I'm empowered to not let that happen. Because the lecture suggests that it ends. The lecture does suggest that it ends. Yeah, um, which is not something you get from the. That's a, that's another point. Sorry, I've gone completely off track. But I tried. <laughs> we will wrap it up. It was just a point. It was a word that I read in one of the articles that you shared with us earlier, Kim, mm-hmm. which was the word claustrophobic about the book. Mm. And the book is claustrophobic Mm -hmm. but i think the tv show is more claustrophobic because there isn't that hope there isn't that end that you have in the book um there isn't that things have changed um so for me i found the tv series much harder to deal with um and i had to turn it off at points and go back to it because it was too much um particularly when they were doing the uh when Janine was talking about the group rape thing, I had to turn it off and walk away. Um, And then come back and watch it when I was feeling more mentally prepared. The book, however, I read in one sitting um, because, maybe because it has that element of hope at the end. Mm. It depends on what part of your life you're in when you're, um, you know, having it in front of you. Um, Yeah. Let's hope there is hope. <laughs> there is so, always hope. Hopeful, empowered, appreciative that this excellent piece of art is in the world. Yes. And good. So, 
notes on the wine out of five cherry wine cherry wine out of five so for, uh, grapes out of five for the uh Lan- lanchester i keep wanting to call it lancaster I know yeah. that's good. Um, I, just... I wanted Lannister. That's Lannister. why I said, is it related to Game of Thrones in any way? And I was like, oh no, wait, I've misread that. No. A Lannister always I drinks his wine. I keep thinking Lannister <laughs> wine because obviously. It looks like it, yeah. Um, and you went But to... I did. Um, spoilers. <laughs> About. Okay. Kim, it was your pick, so I feel like you need to go first. Oh, God. Um, it was too sweet for me. It was. I think that it would be lovely in a long gin and tonic, mm. but as a as a drinking wine, which to be fair, they're not suggesting that you drink it that way. <laughs> no, you just fuck with the system. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna give it a good two and a half. It was taste- you can't do half. I thought yeah, no, we said you can do half. You can't do point two five. Oh gosh. I'm going to give it. <laughs> I'm going to give it a good two and a half out of five it was too sweet for me it was very tasty it was well made i'm certainly not disparaging lanchester wines but i just think diplomatic as Mm. a table wine certainly would not i'm just like fuck it shit okay shit Uh, give it to us give it to us that to me tasted like somebody kim's dying Drink your shit wine. Talk about right. it. Um, okay, so to me, it felt like something that you would put in a cocktail, or like a pre-mixed cocktail, but done badly. So to me, I'm giving it one and a half stars. Ooh, I mean, I drank tired. it, so it's not going below one, but <laughs> I have high standards. Do you? No. You still drank it. <laughs> Whiskey. Um, I... <laughs> I'm I'm probably gonna give it a two. So in, in in between the other two opinions, I'm gonna give it a two because I constantly kept on thinking I'd really like it with some soda and some mint. So in my head, that's what was going on, and so therefore it became a bit tastier. So you pretended is I what you're pretended. saying. Pretend you escaped into a fantasy world of soda and lime. Do you know me? I it's do. not what we do here, Alex. <laughs> well, we deal with hard cold facts. No, we deal we with don't. a lot of opinions. And we a deal lot with of sexy Halloween costumes. <laughs> Trump. <laughs> Trump. <laughs> and dildos. So we've done that wine. What about the other wine? So what about the Alma wine? What is our rating out of five? Uh in the spirit of Whoever bought it Me. goes first. <laughs> Sam, grapes out of five. Grapes out of the... grapes out of five for the Alma wine. Um, I uh, it's not even fucking Australian. It's Spanish. Good, well done, mate. <laughs> do it Don't do a Spanish, Spanish accent. accent. No, because I will get sued. Uh, <laughs> as if I won't already. And um, I would give the Alma wine. Uh, I'll give it a three. I'll give it a three. Mm. It was. Uh, I'd buy it again, which puts it above a two point five for me. Um. It was fine. It wasn't... I'm never going to go, oh my God, that was the most delicious wine I've ever had. But Yeah, I would agree. I'm going to go for a three as well. I enjoy a white wine. I enjoy a dry white wine. I probably wouldn't pay £9 for it. Um, I treat you, mate. I know, thank you. I did appreciate that, being shown the finer things. <laughs> um, You're stick with me, kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was all right. Yeah. Um... I'd like to preface this by saying I'm biased because I don't normally drink white wine. Mm-hmm. And I have like three white wines that I actually like. This isn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving it a 2.5 because okay. I'm good. drinking it 
again, as I said, if it was brought to my table, if someone presented this to me for a dinner party or something, all those dinner parties that I throw. Uh, <laughs> well, you do. I know, I'm an excellent hostess. And you have to leave now? And <laughs> you all have to leave now. Um, if someone presented this to me at a dinner party, I would be very thrilled. Not thrilled. I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> thrilled's going too far. Thrilled is what I'd say. Inwardly, I'd be so happy. So basically, you wouldn't cast it in your host's face, is what you're saying. No, I mean, they're bringing me wine. Um, For anyone who didn't understand the slur, that was no, they're bringing me wine. No, wine. <laughs> 2.5. I like it no more or no less than the cherry wine. I am no more and no less likely to drink it again as I am the cherry wine. Therefore, 2.5. Good. Bad. The book slash the series. What would we give it? On It seems very reductive giving it. The Handmaid's Tale are rating out of five. But you know what? We're going to fucking do it anyway because it's our podcast and we do what we like. I have already done this today because um, Goodreads prompts you to rate everything that you read. Okay. And I am nothing if not meticulous with my Goodreads. I have given it a four out of five purely because I can't give it a five out of five because it's so fucking sad. Mm. Mm. Um, I like, I Because obviously I haven't read the book, but in terms of a series that I would recommend to people. I would never recommend a kind of, like, Sunday hangover um, <laughs> watch, which, you know, you might watch RuPaul or, like, something else a bit frothy. Um, that is not witches. RuPaul <laughs> is going to sue us. He is I going to send it. us I just letters. love the idea of you, like, I've got to offer someone something. It's like, either Hammer's Tale or RuPaul. Um, I feel like that's my life. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, so it's not a Sunday hangover binge watch from Netflix or or Now TV or various other providers, um, but I would say I would say a, a four in terms of a must watch at some point in your life. I would give the book a four point five because I think it does what a lot of books strive to do, which is make itself memorable and make itself. Um, actually part of the history of literature um, in, in literature and I think everybody should read it um, you don't have to enjoy it just fucking read it and the series again I'm only based on season one I'm going to give a four uh, because it is visually stunning it's very well mm. acted but I think it can do there's the scope for improvement yeah as well if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, don't forget to come back in two weeks' time and we will have a brand new grape culture episode for you. What we'll be discussing, you'll have to come and find out. You can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Grape Culture Podcast. And don't forget to check out our website as well, which is grapeculturepodcast.co.uk for all of our episode notes and all the news for what is coming up next. So thanks for listening and we will see you next time.